Good morning. This is a lengthy reading, so please make yourselves comfortable and, and enjoy the word of the Lord. This is from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1 through to uh, chapter 2, verse 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. 
I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. The word of God. Well, hi everyone. This is different. This week was always the potential to be complex and filled with a bit of sadness, and that's indeed the way it's been. Uh, thank you for those who've been praying for me. Uh, thank you for those who've been praying for, for us over the past weeks. I have often said that before you can preach a passage, you need to live it out. And so I was a little nervous earlier this year when Travis said that uh, we're going to do a series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book about the complexity of life. Many of us would prefer certainty in life. Most of us would prefer simplicity in our lives. We want to know what's going to happen, and we want to know what we need to do to make life good. But Ecclesiastes challenges our desire to make life neat. Now, Ecclesiastes is one of what we would call the wisdom books. It's not history, but it's a reflection on life. And the wisdom books aim to provide wisdom for living. Now, the book of Proverbs, for example, is a neat wisdom book. Proverbs teaches, well, here are the rules of life, obey them, and you will find that they work. But then alongside Proverbs, you have the book of Job and you have the book of Ecclesiastes, and their reply to Proverbs is, well, we did, and no, they don't. Now, it's not that Ecclesiastes contradicts Proverbs, but what it does, it prevents us from seeing and reducing life as a simple set of rules. It stops us from making life neat. So let me give you an example out of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 9, 10 and 11 says this. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. Now we would all agree with the general principle of that proverb. It's a good thing to be in relationship with God. It's a good thing to know Him. It's a good way to do life. But if you read that proverb literally as a rule, then you would conclude that people who know God and who are wise are those who live to an old age. Therefore, if a person dies young, then they are obviously godless and stupid. Now, is that the reality of life? And I really hope that someone just said no. Some godly people do live to a good old age. Some wise people do live to a, a good old age. 
but then some are taken from us way too early. You see, the wisdom books of Ecclesiastes and Job save us from inventing a neat world, which in reality is a false world. There was someone I knew many years ago, and uh, they bought this property. And uh, it was a beautiful property, and at the back of the property it had this lovely stand of eucalypt trees. And I remember walking through this stand of eucalypt forest uh, when they first bought it, and it was amazing. It was just this small eucalypt forest, but it was filled with life. Uh, I'm walking through and there's these frill-neck lizards, there's blue tongues uh, underfoot. Uh, we saw the odd red-bellied black snake as well. Above us, uh, there were lorikeets, there were king parrots, uh, there were these little wrens and finches, um, double bar finches, red brow finches. It was, just, it was just this stunning area. And the reason why the life was there is because the forest was messy. There were branches, there were fallen trees on the ground. Uh, it wasn't mown, the, the, the grasses were growing quite long. And, and because of the fallen branches, um, we had termites, we had uh, insects that were there, and they provided food and shelter for the, for the lizards, uh, for the birds to eat as well. And because the grass was seeding, uh, the wrens and the finches could come and feed. But the person who bought the property liked neat. He liked things to be neat and tidy. And so over a period of years, he started to clean up the eucalypt forest. He removed all the dead wood from the, from the floor of the forest. Any dead trees were cut down and, and burnt. And in the process, he destroyed the homes of the lizards and the snakes. He destroyed the food source of the birds and the wrens. He liked the lawn, the grasses being mown really short, and so they never seeded. So we have a neat forest, but it's a forest that is now devoid of life. And I was thinking of that as I wrote this sermon because I think it serves as a bit of a parable. The writer of Ecclesiastes looks at life and he sees its contradictions, he sees its complexities, he sees its messiness, he sees the injustice and the futility of so much of what we do. And instead of giving us a set of rules of what we should do, he calls us to see that the messiness is actually the essence of life on this earth. See, this is the message of Ecclesiastes. In fact, Ecclesiastes has two messages that run together, somewhat contradictory, but they work in beautifully with each other. The first hits us as soon as you open up the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it starts in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And he's still saying it when you get to the end of the book. So you get to chapter 12, and at the end of chapter 12, he says it again. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. It's a pretty positive book, right? Everything is meaningless. Is meaningless. So what's his assessment of life? Well, the Hebrew word is hebel. And hebel is translated best as something like vapor or breath. It's, it's like a nothingness. And when words are based on, on hebel, they have this negative connotation. And so uh, they are words such as meaninglessness or vanity, futility, worthlessness, absurdity and deceit. And so this is the first message that the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us. That in his examination of life, he declares it to be meaningless. He declares life to be an absurdity. Life to be of vanity, life to be of just such little value. Almost that life is deceitful. But in case you're getting worried and 
want to actually walk out of this sermon right now and, and just abandon the book of Ecclesiastes, you have to know also that scattered through the book are some positive declarations about life as well and about how life is to be enjoyed and where life can be found. In fact, seven times in the book of Ecclesiastes, he calls us to enjoy all that God has given to us. And so you just get to chapter 2, verses 24, uh, the first of these seven declarations. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? You see, the the book of Ecclesiastes is both beautiful and complex. The insights in it are profound. Its poetry is magnificent. But at times, the book of Ecclesiastes is difficult to understand. It feels like you're reading someone's diary, because in some sense you are. You're reading their observations of life and their struggle with the pain of their unanswered questions. The questions they have, such as, well, are the things that I pursue in life actually worth anything? Do they lead to anything? Why is it that God feels so remote, so distant from me? And the question around death. Does death just make a mockery of everything, all that we've done in life? Does it just get abandoned because of death itself? At times, this book is pessimistic. At times, it's optimistic, but it has so much to teach us. So today, I want to start with what the writer observes about pleasure and wealth. Now, you may have noticed that I keep calling uh, the person who wrote this, the author, just simply the writer. I haven't given him a name uh, because he doesn't have a name. All we have for the book of Ecclesiastes is the title. Uh, The Hebrew title is Koheleth. Um, The Greek translation of that is where we get Ecclesiastes. And it's not a name, but it's a title. It's actually the profession of the person who has written the book. Uh, The best translation would be something like the assembly or the gatherer of an assembly. So if you imagine an assembly of people like you are assembled in church, the person who gathers and addresses them uh, is Koheleth or Ecclesiastes. Um, And that's why often in the Bibles it will call the person the teacher. And what happens is often we get to here and we go, no, 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 there is a person who wrote this and his name is Solomon. Um, But it's actually not Solomon who wrote this book. The resemblance to Solomon ends at chapter chapter 2. What happens here is at the beginning of the book, the teacher steps into the role of being Solomon. He, he in a sense, role plays Solomon's life because when it comes to examining pleasure and wealth, which is where he starts his book, if there was anyone who understood pleasure and wealth, it was King Solomon. Now, the teacher is not being deceptive here. He's not trying to deceive us in any way because those who heard him, those who read him initially would have understood exactly what he was doing. They would have understood his intent that he role-plays the person of Solomon to examine the pursuit of pleasure and wealth. And so at the beginning of chapter 2, I love it, it's just this dramatic, um, almost theatrical comment where he says, I said to myself, I will test you with pleasure. What a strange thing to say to yourself. I will test myself with pleasure. And so he does. He begins this this search for how he can gain the most pleasure. And so he starts with laughter. He, He obviously brings things into his life that make him laugh. And he comes to the conclusion that laughter is madness. 
And then he, sell, he tries to cheer himself with wine and folly. And there's just this sense of, I'm going to drink a little and I'm going to be a little silly and see how much joy and pleasure that gives my life. And he finds that futile as well. And so he explores pleasure in any ways. He says, well, I'm a man of incredible wealth, so maybe I can find pleasure in using my wealth, in spending my wealth. And so he starts to, to describe what he's done. He said, I built houses, I planted vineyards and gardens and parks and orchards, and then I built dams to irrigate all of these things. I bought slaves and I had more sheep and cows and goats than anybody else in, in, in all of Jerusalem before me. And as for gold and silver, I amassed masses of them, mountains of gold, mountains of silver. In fact, I even paid singers to sing to me and I had my own harem filled with women whose one role in life was to bring me delight. And at the end of his explanation, explanation of his exploration of, of pleasure, uh, he says these words, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Everything was hevel, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And what the teacher is saying is that I pursued it. I pursued pleasure. I pursued wealth to the nth degree. But what I found was that in pursuing these things, I was chasing the wind. It was meaningless. And the reasons why it was meaningless were fourfold. Firstly, pleasure and wealth never satisfy. No matter how much you have, you always want more. There is something addictive to both pleasure and wealth. It doesn't matter how much you have, you've always got to have it again. You've got to have more. Not only doesn't it satisfy that pleasure and wealth never last, you enjoy it and then it's gone, they're fleeting. Uh, wealth, he says, causes worry. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. And finally, he says, well, death makes a mockery of it all. Death robs you of the memory of any pleasure. And death robs you of any wealth that you once had. In the middle section of the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes back uh, just to his reflection on, on the pursuit of pleasure and wealth. And he says this. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. When we read Ecclesiastes, thousands of years on. We read it through the lens of Jesus Christ and we read it through the lens of the new covenant. And so what I'd love for us to do this morning is to actually make three reflections as we read these passages through the lens of Jesus Christ. My first reflection would be this. Pursue what is eternal. Pursue that which will last. Uh, I used this passage a few weeks ago um, when I spoke, um, yeah, uh, when I spoke about generosity, when I spoke about giving. 
But it applies here as well. And Jesus says these words, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus speaks directly to the, uh, to the fact that wealth and pleasure do not last and therefore we would pursue that which does the kingdom of God. When Paul speaks to his disciple, uh, Timothy, he uses much the same words as out of Ecclesiastes when he starts and he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. And get this what Paul says, pursue these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. As we read Ecclesiastes through the lens of the New Testament, we reflect on what it is that we are to pursue, to pursue those things that last for eternity. The second reflection out of Ecclesiastes that I want to make this morning is simply this, um, that we need to remember that death does not make a mockery of life because we live in the resurrection life of Christ. Jesus' death brings us life, and therefore death cannot rob our lives of meaning, and it cannot steal our hope. And death reminds us that this is not our home. This is not all that there is. You know, so you, whereas for the teacher, death made everything meaningless, for us, death puts the life that we have in perspective reminding us to pursue that which lasts beyond the grave. And the third reflection comes so clearly out of the book of Ecclesiastes itself, and it's simply this, that we are to enjoy life as a gift from God. Life is not given to us as a burden, even with all its complexities, all its grief, all of its hardships. Life is given to us as a gift from God, and we are to find joy in all that God has given us. Jesus said that he came to give us life, to bring us life. Not a meagre existence, but life in all its fullness. And so as we enjoy life as a gift from God, I just want to encourage us to be thankful and express that joy of life as part of our worship of God. Enjoy the pleasures that life brings, but always enjoy them governed by your love for God and your love for others. So bless you all. I look forward to being back with you next week and uh, Kathy will continue on our examination of the book of Ecclesiastes then. God bless.